Hi, I'm Elise Lunan, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Eve Ensler. Eve is the fifth guest in our special series called Women on Top, which is all made possible by our friends at Banana Republic. The most interesting businesses are born out of curiosity. This is the space that Gwyneth was in when she started Goop. It's also the space from which Banana Republic was founded back in 1978 by two California creatives with adventurous spirits. Last fall, we partnered with a team at Banana Republic to celebrate curiosity by talking with women who are redefining what it means to be powerful and brave. And we're very excited to be back for a second series. I hope you love listening to these conversations as much as I love having them. And I know you'll be deeply inspired by these women. So please keep listening and keep shopping with our friends at Banana Republic. To see our favorites from their spring collection, head to bananarepublic.com slash goop. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Eve Ensler is a playwright, performer, feminist, and activist. You might recognize her from her play, The Vagina Monologues. She is also the author of The Apology, which is a letter Eve wrote to herself from the perspective of her late abusive father. The book is both heartbreaking and beautiful, and I admire Eve so much for writing it. Today, Eve shares the deep changes writing this book has had on her life. We'll talk about the power of the apology. Eve challenges us to think about what radical change could come from abusers and perpetrators owning and apologizing for the pain they have caused. Eve commends the power of women standing up for themselves and owning their truth, which is something that can never be taken away and explains how everyone has some sort of wound, and although we're taught to avoid them, we must develop the willingness to go through the pain of these wounds to experience true freedom and forgiveness on the other side. All of us need to have and develop the capacity and willingness to go through our wounds so we aren't a slave to them, so we aren't controlled by them, so we aren't wounding and wounding more people as a result of our lack of investigation into those wounds. I'll let Eve Ensler take it from here. Thank you for being here, and thank you for your beautiful book, which was so hard to read, a deeply somatic experience for me, and I'm sure for most people. And I'm so sorry that that you had to write it. Well, thank you. But it was a profound and transformative experience, so no worries. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that was one of my questions is, in the process of writing something like that, was it, did you feel healed before, and I'm sure you're still not healed, 
But did you feel that this book was the thing or did you have to get yourself to a point to be able to even endeavor it? Well, I think anyone who's been sexually abused or physically abused or violently abused knows that it takes many, many years to recover and pull yourself out of it and transform. And then there's all the residue and all the things that have been left behind that you then have to begin to work out in your system. So it takes, you know, I think it it took me many years, but mainly because there wasn't a lot of guidance. There weren't a lot of people who had done it before. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And I think that doesn't have to be the case anymore because people are finding ways through and we are talking about issues now and there are therapists and there are methods and there are processes which people can recover and not take as long as it took me. I will say that writing this book, which is a letter that I wrote to myself from my father, the apology letter I always wanted from his sexual and physical abuse of me, that the writing of this was the, one of the most profound things I've ever done. And from, you know, when the book ended and my father actually says to me, or old man be gone, my father's gone. He really hasn't been back. And my life is deeply, deeply changed. I mean, I, I, it, it's, it's, it's really kind of astounding. So I will say that this exercise or ex or size of a book mm-hmm. had a profound impact on me. And I would say to women who've been abused that if, if you can't get an apology from your perpetrator, that this exercise is really, really, it's deeply transformative. I wouldn't do it alone. I would do it with a therapist or a counselor or a clergy or a friend who could go through the process with you. Okay. So let's start here. Is this, was this the sort of thing that throughout your life, I mean, I know that it's the center of so much of your work, but did it take a certain was it hard to get close to it? Like, did it take you this much time to be able to actually do this? It did. Because I think for, I think for, 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 for the beginning years, you're just unconscious and in denial. Mm-hmm. And you're not even dealing with what's happened to you, has happened to you, because it's too painful. And you've got to really develop enough of an ego and a self to begin to tolerate it. And then when you start to deal with it, then you're just in rage for a period of years, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where you're just, you're, you can't believe someone's done this to you. And I don't think I had the bandwidth or I don't think I had the compassion or the willingness to think, for example, about what my father had been through as a child, which was the core of what made him become the kind of perpetrator he became. Yeah. And I didn't think I, I don't think I had interest in it. I didn't care. But I must say, having now been in the movement to end violence against women, all women and girls for the last 25 years, working day in and day out, and then seeing this recent iteration of Me Too with all these different men being called out, it it really hit me recently that all this time that I've been doing this work, I've never heard a man make a public apology for sexual or physical abuse. Maybe in all the years of patriarchy, I've never heard it. So it really hit me that somewhere in this non-apology, it's one of the columns that's holding up patriarchy. And what we need to do is help men and encourage men to begin to go through a kind of apology that I kind of outlined in the book. Yeah. No, it's so true. I mean, on my drive over here, I was listening to NPR and I was listening to commentary on the Harvey Weinstein case. And they were saying that he was falling asleep 
you know, mm-hmm. during the testimony. And it's, I know he's just one example, but... And, and and we can look at how many men. I mean, Bill Cosby just said a month ago or a few weeks ago, he's coming up for parole and you'll see no remorse from me. I mean, we can look through so many of the perpetrators who have been who have been called out, who where there's evidence, and there's there's just the non-apology. Yeah. It, it, look at our look at the predator in chief, who has lied to us, has. Um, undermined us, who has committed high crimes and misdemeanors, turning everything on its head and doing opposite world. Not only not apologizing, but gaslighting the people who are trying to bring some justice about, right? Yeah. And that's a tactic of, that's a tactic of patriarchs. That's a tactic of predators. Always reverse it and make yourself the victim, right? Yeah. What my father did to me. Oh, it hurts me so much more than it hurts you to beat you. Oh, look what you've done to me that I could become a person who would do this to you, right? Mm-hmm. And and part of what our work has to be is how do we how do we first of all know what gaslighting is and take ourselves seriously and know our own truth and stand in our truth, which is what so many women have so valiantly been doing in the last few years, is just really standing up and saying, this is my truth, and you can't take that away from me. But the second thing is men have to start become willing to go through a process to understand, first of all, what in the countries, their own families, in the culture, allowed them and encouraged them and and created them to be the kind of men who were capable of sexual harassment or rape or sexual abuse or beating their wives or girlfriends or, or lovers. And then the second part is, like, what have you actually done? What A detailed accounting of that. Mm-hmm. So that you really have to look piece by piece and take responsibility. And then the third piece is, really, what, has, what is the impact of this on the people I've harmed? How did it harm them in the short term? What did it do to their feelings about themselves, their feelings about their body, their ability to be intimate, their ability to enjoy sex, their ability to focus and concentrate, their ability to remember? I mean, what what were the consequences of my action? And to actually sit with the suffering you've caused. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth thing, of course, is to take responsibility and to make amends. And if men began to start to do this process, begin to change so radically. Yeah. And I mean, I I think that the inventory that you use in terms of your, how in, how transgenerational this can be. And the idea too, of like, if you can, you know, what do they say? Like if you heal one generation or one Mm -hmm. wound, it goes seven generations up and back, but like the wounding that we carry and then continue to perpetrate on each other, it has to start to be undone. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and I think one of the things I learned from this book, and it, 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 it's kind of it's the opposite of, in a way, what we're told in this country. You know, everybody's told in this country to avoid pain, right? Yeah. To stay away from pain, deny pain. But here's the truth. Every single one of us has some sort of wound. Everybody. Of course. Everybody, everybody on this planet has a wound. And most of us are taught never to go near it, cover it up. You know, put brush by, put brush, put brush over it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Decorate it, deny it. The truth of the matter is, I had to go through the wound in order to write this book. I had to go through it, and it was very, very, very painful for a short period of time. But on the other side of that wound, there was freedom, and it taught me that all of us need to have and develop the capacity.
capacity and willingness to go through our wounds so we aren't a slave to them, so we aren't controlled by them, so we aren't wounding and wounding more people as a result of our lack of investigation into those wounds. And also re-victimizing ourselves through the rage or through the fact that we... We're putting ourselves in situations where people are constantly re-wounding us. Right. You know? And for so many women, as you mentioned, you know, I don't know the rates of which women who have been sexually assaulted, but I would assume it's close to 100 percent, like some some sexual trauma that did not, you know, the the ongoing taking pleasure away from women, which can, you know, stay with people until they die. And that's a, a, such a massive crime to not feel pleasure in your body or to feel like which it's dirty. Which is really one of the main reasons we're here. Like, come on, we're not here to be unhappy. We're not here to be miserable. We're not here to be scared. We're not here to be strong. We're here to enjoy each other and love each other and have pleasure for God's sakes. Yeah. Right? No. And, 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 and the fact that that's robbed from so many women, right? And early for so many women. It's just a huge crime. Yeah. No, I, I could not agree more. So when you, and you talked about sort of the exorcism of your father, old man be gone, and then feeling like the haunting uh, he was, I guess, the specter of him had uh, been eliminated from your life. Do you have a different relationship with him, or do you feel like you have just moved on in a whole and sound way? I feel like that story is over. Mm-hmm. You know, I think so much of my life was within his paradigm and his story, which was me proving to him that I wasn't a failure or stupid or a liar or a bad person or and every victory or success I had, it was like, see, so there, so mm-hmm. there, you know what I mean? But everything was a reaction to him. Everything was within his, within his narrative. And his narrative is over. Yeah. It's over. I'm in my narrative now. And it's very different. And that feels wild. <laughs> Do you know? It's like I'm just beginning to get, um, you know, I've got sea legs. I'm just beginning to find my way with it. You know? Yeah. So interesting. This is such a beautiful passage, too. You write, I refuse to know or see you, and this in some ways was the most destructive and punishing deprivation. Isn't that all any of us crave, really, to be known, to be given shape and form by being recognized and cherished? For how else can we trust that we are even here? And perhaps this is why I became so extreme, because I was invisible to myself, because I had been erased. I needed to find ways to experience my existence and feel my impact on others so beautiful and hard. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book is stunning, but I thought that was so resonant on so many levels because it's true. That's all, it's all, we all, we just want to be seen and it is how we define ourselves. And I don't know whether that's, that's the beauty of being human and in relationship or it's upon us to define ourselves. I just don't know. I mean, thinking about your, your father's childhood, in the absence of healthy definition or help from a parent, I guess this is where monsters emerge. Yes, and I think I think one of the things that was so telling uh, of, of really kind of excavating my father's story, granted it was imaginative, but I think the imagination is sometimes more accurate than anything. I think one of the things that really, really, really got to me was realizing how adored my father was, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how how adoration isn't love. Adoration is a projection of someone's idealized image of you or a perfected image of you that you have to live up to. 
And if you fail to live up to that, then you're basically outcast and dismissed, right? Mm -hmm. So my father was never loved for who he was. He was never even seen. His mother and his father had an idea of him that he, you know, he was adored and he was going to be that. And so when, whenever it wasn't matching who he was with this ideal, my father was incredibly heartbroken, incredibly frustrated, incredibly, you know, if he, if he were to experience tenderness or wonder or doubt or cry or vulnerability, that wasn't allowed within that mm-hmm. idealized adoration, right? And I think this happens to a lot of boys. And, and so what do they do with their heart? What do they do with their tears? What do they do with their feelings? They, they shut them down and they push them down and they, they push them down and they push them down. And eventually, and, and this certainly was in the case of my father, they erupt. Yeah. And often they erupt with perversion, violence, distortion, aggression, sexual abuse, because those feelings haven't been allowed into the world. They become perverted and, 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 and mutilated. And now they're going to wreak havoc on others. Yeah. And so it really taught me, like, how critical it is how we bring up our boys. Yeah. That we have to allow them to be humans and allow them to be tender and allow them to cry and allow them to feel wonder and curiosity and, and, and magic, to feel magic mm-hmm. in this world, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. In the process of writing the book, I know you said imagination, but it's it read to me like it was channeled, like it read, mm-hmm. did you, like, do you feel like you, how did it work? Well, I, I'm really appreciative of you using that word because it, it felt channeled to me too. I really feel as if once I decided to do this, my my father kind of came and he was here, even though he's dead. And I don't, I can't explain to you what the dynamics were, but he was in me, on me, around me, through me for, for like solid four months. I just kind of lived in my office for four months. And, and I would go, to, I, I sometimes wouldn't even leave, it to, I, you know, I would sleep in my office. It was like he was here. And sometimes mm-hmm. he'd wake me up at four o'clock in the morning and he'd say, go right, go to your desk, I'm going to tell you the story. Like it was like that, like yeah. the story about the bird. Like he woke me up at four o'clock in the morning. It was like, I want to tell you the story. And, and. Who knows what is what? Who knows? You know, I, I learned so much about our relationship with the dead writing this book, that we really are in relationship with the dead. They're all around us. Yeah. And often they really do need us to be in dialogue so they can understand things and work out things and they can get free. And I, I honestly feel after the end of this book, my father was in a very, very bad place when this book began, where he's been for 31 years. He's been spinning in limbo in a in really terrible place. And I, I don't think he's there anymore. I yeah. think he's in a much better place now. Yeah. And that may be my fantasy, but it also feels very real to me. We'll get back to Eve Ensler in just a second. You've probably heard me mention that curiosity is my favorite state of being. I try to carry that attitude with me every day, and it's certainly easier to do it at a place like Goop that places such a premium value on being curious and feeling empowered to explore and ask questions. Banana Republic is another company that values curiosity. Their founding story starts with a California couple who were looking for an adventure. Fun fact, 
Banana Republic began as a safari-inspired clothing company, and today the inspiration for their clothing is designed for a life in motion, or as they put it, living a life of possibilities with no boundaries. This can be seen in Banana Republic's latest spring collection, a modern, versatile take on workwear. To see our favorites from the collection, head to bananarepublic.com goop. Although I do like to hit up the Goop store in Brentwood every now and then, I find myself spending less and less time shopping for clothing in stores. And I know a lot of women who just flat out don't feel like they have the time or energy to shop for themselves. La Tote is a fashion rental service that makes it easy and convenient to freshen up your wardrobe regularly for a flat monthly fee. Their mission is to make fashion accessible to every woman every day. Whether you're the kind of person who likes to try out trends or the kind of person who goes weak at the knees when you think about a trip to the mall. With La Tote, you still get to choose the clothes and accessories you want to wear. You browse styles on La Tote's site, pick what you want to rent, and everything gets delivered right to your door. You can wear the pieces as long as you'd like, and when you're done, you just send them back in a prepaid envelope. La Tote does the laundry for you so that you don't have to worry about that. If you love a piece enough to keep it, you get up to 50% off the retail price. To check it out, visit latote.com. Right now, Latote is offering 40% off your first two months. Just use code GOOP to get your discount today. That's L-E-T-O-T-E dot com and use code GOOP. Back to my chat with Eve Ensler. It reads as very real. I mean, that was... My sense of it was not that it was a projection from you. It felt like a channeled text. It really did. It was so, so powerful. I mean, the story of the bird, the story of backhand, the cat. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) (laughs) even those like interjections of like some moment of shared humanity and the way that you, your goodness or the way his the way that he perceived you as a baby, the way that you, your goodness triggered his perversion. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so in terms of the what you've done to heal for, over the years and then this this final beautiful work, like what, well, how did you start to get close to it? I mean, I'm, I'm imagine. I know you numbed with alcohol and drugs for a period of your life, et cetera. What have been the most helpful mechanisms for you? Well, writing, I mean, I think writing has saved my life, you know, just trying to figure out a way to turn the poison into some kind of medicine or, or some kind of something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, activism, um, reaching out and, and trying to help out or serve really or be there for women who are going through really rough things has helped me immensely because it's made me feel useful. Mm-hmm. And somehow usefulness gives you meaning. And, and, and being able to show up for other people makes you feel useful. I think, you know, over these 25 years, I have had the honor and the privilege to sit with women in 80 countries, you know, from Bosnia to Afghanistan to Congo to Kosovo to India to all over this planet. It, it, women have shared their deepest, most powerful, intimate stories of rape, of, of burnings, of, of of brutality with me across the world. And I think somehow being able to be in that dialogue with women, to be trusted as a holder of those stories, and and to be on a journey with women across the world that I've been on for the last 25 years in this movement, 
to have sisters that that long in this movement who I trust and who I'm still rising with. You know, this year we're just about, you know, we're in one billion rising in B-Day season now, and there's thousands of risings all over the world, you know, 180 countries. There's 500 productions of the, you know, vagina monologues and other plays. Our movement's vast, and there's something about being embraced by a movement and held by other women who are going through it and to be in the deepest sisterhood and friendship with women, that you really can be okay. Mm-hmm. You really can be okay. Because there's nothing stronger than the power of sisterhood. How, in terms of the context, I'm, I'm really curious about your family and the people who were there to witness, and specifically your mom. Like, do you, is there another book of apology coming from her? No, because I feel like in my last book, In the Body of the World, which is really about what I went through when I had stage four cancer and as we were building the city of joy in the Congo, I feel like I, I really dealt with my mother in that book. And, I, and after I confronted my mother before she died about what my father had done, my mother really went through a deep, deep apology process with me. Mm. She did. And she owned it. And she stood in it. And she was, she was really there for me. And so by the time she left this world, I felt like we had cleaned up what was between us, you know? Yeah. Did she know or did she? It's a good question. I mean, she certainly knew about the abuse, you know, right. because often she was an accomplice. But, you know, how much she knew when, when I said it to her, she said, oh, my God, every sign in the world was there. The fact that I was always taking you to doctors and you had, you know, night terrors every night. And, you know, I mean, she, she was like, oh, my God, it's so clear. Right. I, I don't know how much we know and how much we don't know, right? How yeah. much do we block out? How much do we pretend? Like, how much, how much does the Senate know right now? Right. right? <laughs> exactly. How much do they know? Do they know everything? Or are they in a twilight state where they're just, they just erase their minds? Or do they know? And are they just really, really evil? It's really hard to tell. Right. I'm, I'm sure they're all finding ways to numb. Yes. Right. Um, so I think we all find our ways. You know, my mother said when I when I did confront her, she said something very profound to me. She said, you know, I a few days later, she called me and she was crying and she said, I realized what I did. You were my sacrifice. Wow. I was poor when I grew up. I didn't have any money. Your father was my way out of that. I didn't have a job. I had three kids. I had nowhere to go. I sacrificed you. Mm. And as chilling as I was, and believe me, that was chilling, I knew it was true. Right. You know, so in a way it freed me because I didn't have to pretend anymore. Right? Yeah. And, you know, and I think one of the hard things about any relationship with parents, as as healthy as they may be or not, is that is those revelations, I don't know when it comes, but when you're like, oh, my God, my parents are human. Mm-hmm. And exactly. Yeah, like to be able to go to your mom and understand what she did in self-protection or in the perception of self-protection and find the grace to understand and forgive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you work, you know, with all of these women across the world with trauma, how do you... Is it so storytelling, writing, is that and do you think that's like the best way to get it out of your body? Like how do how do you see women processing it or, you know, getting it out? Well, you know, I, I think it, it, it really depends. 
I think I've done, I've done things where all I've done is listen, you know, and just been there to hold someone's hand and listen. And I've done workshops where we've done all kinds of exercises where people have bats and pillows and rage and you know what I mean? So it really depends on, you know, I, I, I did a group for years, for example, at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, a writing group where women wrote about their crimes and wrote about their histories. And I, was, I did that for eight years, which eventually became a documentary. And it was all through writing exercises, you know, and it was, it was writing about the past. It was writing about childhood. It was writing about the crimes. It was, you know, so I think there's a lot of different ways to get at things, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think really what, where it lodges itself is the body, the body. Yeah. And I think until you get it out of your body you don't change. Yeah. And when I got very sick 10 years ago, when I had stage three slash four uterine cancer, I had to deal with my body. It was like, oh, okay. We're, yeah. we're not now on the level of your DNA, your cells, your body. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it was so interesting. I was reading this article. I don't know where it was, even the Guardian or the Times, somewhere yesterday where they were talking about, they're now doing all this research with cancer where they're beginning to discover and see when they, they're beginning to think that they can identify when the cancer begins to start in your body, right? Like they can actually see little inklings of the molecules and the particles beginning to break down. And I was thinking to myself, like, I really truly believe that in time, years and years from now, we'll come to see that trauma is equal to cancer. I just think they're so deeply, it's like one word, right? And I think it's almost like how do you get down to the cellular level so you can begin to release the trauma, the trauma, the trauma tentacles, the trauma DNA that is ruling your life without you even consciously knowing it, right? Yeah. That's where we have to go to to really change. And that requires concentration and work, and, yeah. and you can't skip over it. No, absolutely. And awareness, because I and think... And awareness, yeah. yeah. I mean... And, I, and motivation. You have to want to do that. And for me, I, I was in so much pain in so much of my life, emotional pain, that um, I'm filled with self-hatred and self-doubt and so, mu- so many tortured feelings that it, it motivated me. Yeah. I didn't want to be in that pain, you know? Well, you, you were in a life and death battle in many ways. Yeah, yeah. What, and, and in terms of your awareness, because I would imagine at some point your subconscious would have, you know, intervened and blocked off some of those memories. Like, were you always fully conscious of what had happened to you? Or? No, 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 not at all. As a matter of fact, like, I didn't begin to start having my memories until my 30s, late 30s. And I remember being in college, to be honest with you, I was drinking with some night and I was drunk and I made a joke and I said oh yeah yeah and then my father said to my mother get the kitchen knife and I was laughing Mm. like I thought it was funny and my friends everyone just stopped the whole room just stopped and said what (laughs) like what and I'm telling you until that moment I did not know that was not normal right how could I know that my frame of reference was like that's what happened in everyone's family right yeah. So that was like a shocking wake up call. Did you know, were you aware of that what your dad was doing like that in the process of molesting you? Did you 
did you make that connection or did that come later too? Oh, all that came later because so much of, like I had so repressed and pushed down what my father had done to me sexually. Like I knew something weird had gone on because I was always, I had all these serious bladder infections and I had nightmares and I was just so screwed up as a child. But it took me years to be able to, do you know when my first memories came back? I, my first marriage split up and I decided to go to Berlin to help chip at the Berlin Wall to help it come down. Mm -hmm. And I went and had one of those baskets and I was chipping away all day at the graffiti. And I went to my hotel and that night I had my first memory in my dream. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Chipping at the wall. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and you think about, when you talk about too, that wounding, you know, it's, that's, that's happened to all of us. Yeah. I mean... I can only imagine what we've all buried in our bodies and in yeah. our subconscious and then don't understand why we're acting the way that we are. I mean, that's been my experience where I've only been able to access memories through like a MDMA psychotherapy session where you're suddenly you're like, oh, my God, uh, this happened. And it's shocking because it then it rearticulates or it's like a straightening of your spine in a way where you're like oh my god now everything makes sense but somehow you were missing you know you're like missing the the bottom of the spot like you don't understand where the story started mm-hmm. and so I think I think you're right I think trauma and the way that it manifests in disease is sort of the tipping point and I think so many of us don't even know it's there yeah and it's hard work, but I'm, as you say, it, like, give, it has given you your freedom. It has. It has. And, you know, it's worth it this work. Worth it. I just want to say to people, you can get free. You can have a really good life. You can, you can feel pleasure. You can feel happiness. It's possible. And, and, and I think sometimes the, the second rape or the second abuse is we tell women after they've been abused that they'll never recover from it. And it's just not true. We can recover. Mm. And and I and I and I it, and I'm not saying it doesn't take work, but we can. Yeah, and in terms of getting it out of your body, like, did you have any somatic experiencing? Like, did you, or was it the act of writing? Is that was that the expulsion, or did well, you? Well, I somatized so much in my life. You know, I was always sick up until I had cancer, and then I got super sick, and basically, since then, I have been well. It was like the purging. It was the come to Jesus moment. It was yeah. like, wake up, you know. And, you know, I changed my whole life. I've moved to the country. I lived with the trees and the woods now. I, you know, everything changed after that. But I think I somatized a lot. And I, I will say that one of, the thing, one of the reasons I believe in Wombillion Rising so much and why we started this dance revolution eight years ago is because dancing is the antidote to trauma. Mm. It's the antidote to loneliness. It's the antidote to isolation. It's the antidote to feeling of desexualization of your body. It's the antidote to wanting to curl up in a ball and die. It's, you know, it is so powerful dancing. Yeah. And, and I would really say that survivors dance all the time, dance every day, dance as much as you can, because it is when it is the way back home, you know, mm. into your body. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Your book is a gift. Thank you for everything that you've done for women for so many decades. Thank you so much. And um, I can't wait to see what's next. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Eve Ensler. 
For more on Eve, head to eveensler.org. That's E-N-S-L-E-R. And make sure to pick up a copy of her book, The Apology, available now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.